0: What a lovely time it is to be a New South Welsh person. Summer is two weeks away. We're out of lockdown. The international border is open for citizens and permanent residents, at least. The rest of the world is still persona non grata for Australia, but that'll change next year. New South Wales has a a new premier, new leader, and things are frankly looking up. We're outside again, we're wandering around, the windows are open, people are having parties, there are barbecues going on, and I don't want to say I told you so. But to the rest of the world, and to those of my listeners who were wringing their hands and sending me furious tweets after my various appearances, on American podcasts and writing in Barry Weiss's newsletter and in defence of vaccine mandates and trying to explain Australia's pandemic overreach, not to justify it, but to contextualise it and to make the point that whilst I disagreed with much of Australia's response, it was all within the context of things that liberal democracies might want to do in a time of emergency. It was just that Australia's emergency had been time shifted from the rest of the world because Australia had blocked the rest of the world out, including the pandemic, largely, with the exception of Melbourne and Victoria, largely from two months after the pandemic in 2020 until the southern winter of 2021. Anyway, all of that's water under the bridge now, but there was a lot of Australia has fallen, Australia has become an authoritarian, totalitarian dictatorship, and my response was always just, well, let's wait and see. If we get to high vaccination rates and low hospitalization rates, and Australia is still doing what it was doing in June, July, August, and September of this year, then I would have had grave fears for the future of Australian democracy. Again, this is not a defense of everything that happened, it's a defense of thinking about it in the context of what democracies have to do to protect public health, rather than the context of how democracies collapse and fall into totalitarian dictatorships. So I'm feeling good, and I'm actually heading abroad in a few weeks, which is beyond exciting. I don't think there's a two-year period since I was 18 when I haven't left the country multiple times. Having somewhat gotten used to having one foot in New York City and one foot in Sydney for 12 years while I lived in New York, the past two years of being, forget about trapped inside intermittently during lockdowns, but just trapped in a continent that's stranded on the underbelly of the world has been stressful enough for me. So we're heading off to see my partner's family, take the kids on a bit of a holiday, Spent Christmas in New England amid the snow and the Santas and all that fun stuff. I hope you're well. I hope your family are well. I hope you're chugging along and dusting yourself off after the various stresses of the past couple of years. The world has never been more connected and it's never been more divided, and most of the media still panders to what you believe and distorts what you don't and reinforces our biases and exaggerates our divisions. We are living inside echo chambers. But as one of the various taglines of this show goes, change doesn't happen inside an echo chamber. One thing we've got planned over the holiday period is an Ask Me Anything episode. I wanted to give it a crack and see whether or not there's anything that you would like to ask your wise professor here, Professor Zepps. If you have a question about literally anything, shoot us, shoot it to us in an email, ideally as a voice memo, just record it on your phone, and email it to uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. That's uncomfy with a Y, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y, convos, C-O-N-V-O-S, at gmail.com, uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. You could just tweet a question at me in text, but that's much less interesting than getting your voice on the podcast. Uh, so do that over the next couple of weeks. That's starting today, which should be the 17th of November, and uh, we'll run it for at least two weeks. So, But don't leave it. Don't do it. Just do it now. Just think, have a noodle. Have a noodle on what you might want to ask old, uh, old Uncle Josh. I've just gone from being a professor to an uncle. It could be creepy. Next, I'll be your husband. Anywho, it's, uh, it's time for us to have conversations that are a little bit more exciting, a little bit more boundary-pushing. Allow your question to be such a such a conversation. It doesn't have to be highly original. It might just be something that's been floating around that you're wondering about my opinion on, which you've been talking about with friends and family, and wonder if there's a more interesting way to think about than the box inside your, inside which you're all sitting. So let us step out of the bunker. Let us stretch our legs. Let us step on some landmines. It's time to have... Uncomfortable Conversations. G'day humans. Do you eat bacon? Do you eat horse? Have you tried dog? Would you eat chimpanzee meat? Under what circumstances would you eat human flesh? If you've ever read... Any of Peter Singer's writing, you'll be familiar with his sense of utilitarianism or consequentialism. He wrote the book Animal Liberation, which really exploded onto the scene in the 1970s and almost launched the animal rights movement. And today, in the 2020s, the next generation of thinking around how to think about the well being of other animals is emerging in the form of a framework called sentientism sentientism is the idea that we should be judging the well-being and the rights i don't want to use the word rights the the interests of non-human animals according to their ability to feel pain and have sensations and have aspirations and to suffer and the person who's spearheading this way of thinking about the world or rather the formalistic sort of movement of sentientism is a bloke named Jamie Woodhouse in the UK. He's trying to develop sentientism as a philosophy, as a global movement. He hosts the sentientism podcasts. He hosts the sentientism YouTube videos. He's published articles. He's presented academic seminars. He's building a range of global sentientism communities that are open to everyone. They span over a hundred countries you can find him on Twitter at Jamie Woodhouse and at Sentientism, and uh, you can look for his podcast and YouTube channel and so on and so forth. Uh, he also believes in updating the Universal Decor- Declaration of Human Rights to uh, essentially include sentient rights. What are the implications of all this hoo-ha on what you eat, on our industrial factory farming, and on how you think about yourself as you're positioned in the animal kingdom. Jamie has a lot of answers and I have a lot of questions. Enjoy this conversation with Jamie Woodhouse. Why don't we start with what sentientism is because I think people will be curious about how you define it.
1: Yeah, of course. So, it's a it's a worldview or a philosophy of life, if you like, and I'd summarize it in a sentence as evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient
0: beings. So that's it. Um, How does that differ from general kind of being a good person and humanism and secularism?
1: Well, that's the, that's the odd thing about it because it sounds quite anodyne and somewhat obvious, but when you carry it through, the implications can start to get a little bit more radical. So the, the first part, the evidence and reason, uh, aspect which you might more formally call a sort of you know naturalistic way of thinking about the world um has a, a great deal in common you know it's almost a full overlap with secular humanism or uh, other ways of naturalistically thinking about the universe so you know using evidence using reason trying to engage honestly with reality to try and understand it with humility so th- there's nothing really new there um on that side of the fence um, and the compassion part also echoes a lot of religious and non religious worldviews you know there 's an aspiration there for a universal compassion. I guess the difference is that rather than looking at a particular group of people or even humanity as a whole, sentientism, I guess the clue is in the name, says that we should grant moral consideration or we should have compassion for every being that has sentience, which is in simple terms the capacity to experience anything at all but uh, you know, to suffer, to flourish, to f-
0: feel things, to enjoy things. Um, um, and presumably that doesn't mean that you grant equal consideration to all sentient creatures? It doesn't have to. So I've tried to keep this f-
1: d- way of describing sentientism as very, very basic. So it really is just evidence, reason and moral com- Consideration for all sentient beings. It doesn't go beyond that and tell us. There's another
0: sentient being right there
1: in the background. Exactly. Right (laughs) on cue. Right on cue. So so there's a massive variety of different opinions within people who might call themselves sentientists. So in that way, it's very pluralistic. It's really just a platform or a starting point. So there are some people um, who think in a sentientist way who will aspire to be more egalitarian, if you like. They say, look, if, if an entity is sentient, we should try and accord it. The same moral consideration, but I think most and me included will recognize that there's such an enormous variety of different types of sentient experiences, it might make sense to grade moral consideration or recognize that different types of sentience are going to have very different sorts of interests and needs, and that could lead you to, um, you know, grading your moral consideration. Yeah,
0: I mean, it would sort of have to. I mean, anyone who treated an ant the same as a chimpanzee. And anyone for whom, if you were conducting a science experiment in a lab, was willing to do to the chimpanzee exactly what they would do to an ant and simply threw their arms up and shrugged when you said, do you care whether or not I use a magnifying glass on the ant or I burn the chimpanzee alive? Anyone who said, well, it makes no difference to me because they're both sentient, would be a psychopath.
1: And I whether I call them a psychopath or not, I, I don't know, but I'd agree that's a pretty extreme point of view. You know, and the other the other classic example is, you know, would you save a, a chicken or a human from a burning house if you could only save one? I think even the people who theoretically, you know, push for something that's more egalitarian, you know, things break
0: down when you're really under pressure and you've got to take those tough calls. Um, well, yeah. So this... Let, let's let's talk in a sec about the, whether or not humans have a special status, because I think that mm. that's an that is an interesting objection to sentientism. But we we you sort of um, you bounced over a bunch of uh, of terms as if they're universally known, and they are amongst people who've studied philosophy, but they might not actually be by everyone. So let's just start with each of the the legs of the stool that you're constructing here. The first being mm. you mentioned secular humanism and naturalism. What's what's naturalism? So naturalism
1: um, can mean again a few different things there's one it's it's a way of understanding a way of building beliefs, so that's really the evidence and reason it's um uh, a, a philosophy about how to believe that says you should gather evidence, try to do that neutrally, uh, recognize your biases, and use that evidence to build. Uh, beliefs through uh, reasoning and critical thinking so you might set that against supernaturalism which generally might be a way of believing that would uh, accept revealed beliefs maybe religious beliefs mystical spiritual beliefs where they're not explicitly not founded on evidence and reason they're based on a faith or some other mode of believing so that's that's the basic way of thinking about naturalism as a as a method, if you like, a way of understanding reality and building beliefs. But it often links to another form of naturalism, which just says, you know, the natural world is all that exists. There is nothing supernatural beyond that. So in the realm of religion, that might lead someone to be, you know, either a a very strong agnostic or an atheist, but it can apply in many different fields of knowledge as well.
0: And is that different from materialism? Materialism being, yeah, the idea, basically, the, a form of naturalism that <clears throat> says that all that there is is the material world, and there aren't spirits and ghosts and gods floating it's around. Clo-
1: it's closely related, but it's interesting because you can you can find um, distinctions at the boundaries. So there are some people who will say that their supernatural belief is grounded in a naturalistic understanding of the world. So if someone tells you, you know, they've Used evidence and reasoning to come to a belief that there is a deity. Arguably, they're claiming to have used a sort of naturalistic method, but achieved a supernatural result. That doesn't make too much sense to me, but you know there are right. some wring- wrinkles around the edges.
0: Yeah, you yeah, know that makes that makes some sense to me. That you know you could imagine and it, and it, before before people had discovered radio waves or something like that, you could imagine people thinking that natural the naturalistic and the materialist explanation. Uh, we're, we're the same, but then you know you discover UV light or something that's beyond the spectrum that we can see, and you go, "Oh, actually, this is a naturalistic explanation for something that is seemingly immaterial."
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think even if someone makes a supernatural claim but says they're based, basing their thinking in naturalism, at least you can still have a reasonable conversation about the nature of that evidence and the nature of the reasoning. Whereas I think once someone has said, "I don't need evidence of reasoning anymore." it's hard to find a basis for discussion once once someone's got to that stage right and, and i think even many naturalists and i probably include myself in this i'm I, you know i'm a methodo- methodological naturalist i'd say look, I, I won't believe something until there is evidence and reason that doesn't mean i'm 100% sure there's nothing supernatural i can imagine something supernatural conceptually could exist but you know without evidence for it i certainly won't choose to believe in it and i can't imagine how i would find evidence of something that is supernatural anyway because as soon as you find evidence of something to me by definition it's part of the natural world so
0: right yes there's an analogy there to sort of alternative medicine and things like that you know there's a there's a, a clever saying that alternative once alternative once alternative medicine works then it's not alternative anymore it just is medicine there's yeah. no such thing as alternative <laughs> medicine alternative medicine is just a bunch of stuff that doesn't work uh, that you call alternative because if it did work you would just call it medicine um, exactly. That, yeah. Secular, and, se- yeah. Sorry. And 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 that quite often when we talk about naturalistic
1: thinking, um you know, people will instinctively think of atheism or agnosticism, and they'll think about the religious field. But as you say, there, there's so many different fields of human knowledge where people believe things without decent evidence or reasoning. Alternative medicine, quid non, various unfounded conspiracy theories, you know, anything. Right. Yes. Gwyneth, anything Gwyneth Paltrow sells. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a there's a long list, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, although they would probably couch their belief in naturalistic language, right? Hmm. I mean, you might not – if you believe in ghosts, you probably don't, but if you believe in the power of crystals or you believe in um, – uh, well, I'm trying to think of, you know, like homeopathy, Yeah. then you probably are using naturalistic language and just saying that there are limits to the scientific method about that it's too narrow in yeah. what it is trying to measure. And that you're measuring things that, that don't quite fit the scientific paradigm, but that nonetheless work within the context of the natural world.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's
0: very common is to use that naturalistic language, but it doesn't take long to dig through that. Once you start to actually look at the evidence
1: that's being used, um, it quite, yeah. quite quickly becomes clear whether there's integrity in that sort of position yeah. or whether it's just a, um, you know.
0: A yes, I usually, I usually just try to get people to do the thought experiment of, of gathering a thousand random people and doing a double blind trial. And that <laughs> like that, that really is very simple. Like if people claim that homeopathy works, then there's, there is no mysterious like onus that the scientific method is putting on a discipline that is, that is too onerous, you know, for it to pass. If it works, like, it's not like you have to fill out forms in triplicate and submit them to some scientific body to get recognized as having so, as, as working naturalistically all you need to do is get a thousand people together. You want to yeah. get two batches of a thousand people and have one of them, you know, take a homeopathic remedy and have the others take a placebo. And if there's a difference between the homeopathic the people who got the homeopathic remedy, then great. There's there's some utility. And in some strange examples, there actually is some evidence then you have to tease out what's actually going on because uh people who go to homeopathic doctors and spend an hour or an hour and a half a week talking to them and then get their Sugar water, or just their plain water, which is what homeopaths uh, prescribe, then they actually do seem, it does seem to have an effect. So then you've got to figure out okay, is it the water, or is it the fact that they're getting essentially a quasi therapy from this person once a week? But anyway, I think it's a good rule of thumb to just get people to imagine gathering a thousand people together and then seeing if there's an impact. And that usually shuts them up about. (laughs) Uh, whether or not there there are mysterious sort of non immaterial or non non non-rational ways of understanding the effect of some mystical pursuit yeah it's a, a simple straightforward test
1: and i think you can get into all sorts of details about quality of evidence and different methods and you know i'm not saying it's all just narrow scientific evidence either you know my personal experience is a sort of evidence i know this coffee mug is here and i haven't done a randomized control trial to work that out. So there's, you know, you can think of evidence in quite a broad way, but Mm. I think you're right. You have to uh, recognize the sort of statistics of grading how important evidence is. You have to be open to a range of different evidence. You can't just cherry pick the stuff you, uh, uh, supports your, um, the things you want to believe in. And I think it's also useful to, I mean, personally, I'm quite like a probabilistic way of building beliefs in that outside of formal fields like maths, it doesn't make sense to be absolutely 100% sure of anything, really, you should always leave a little bit of wiggle room. And then rather than saying, you know, I believe this, or I don't believe that in a binary sense, you can just grade your credence in something along with the strength of the evidence you've seen, but you're always open to new ideas. So yeah, provisional beliefs, probabilistic beliefs, and where they have a moral impact, you know, maybe we should add prudent to that list as well.
0: Yeah. Yes, credence is a great word and and I wish if everyone could know one thing then you know my, one of my top 3 to 5 things that I wish people understood that they don't is uh, the difference between a credence and a belief in the philosophical sense. Like in in an, I remember in first year epistemology at university, uh, learning about how we conditionalize our credences, which is just jargon for how you sort of slide your potential beliefs up and down the probability scale on the basis mm. of what evidence they've got. And once you start to look at all of the things mm. that you understand about the world to just be sort of probabilistic on some sense, in some sense, makes it much easier to talk about truth and reality because it's not a binary on off switch it's just yeah okay maybe that's true like to what extent do i believe that the napoleonic wars happened i mean i do but i don't believe them terribly much i mean there's quite a it's it's entirely possible that there's some some you know i don't know some there's some conspiracy about pretending that the napoleonic (laughs) wars happened you know that napoleon never existed and once you take it back to you know, was Jesus, were all of Jesus's uh, miracles true? I mean, it's it's possible. It's just not very likely. So then conversations with religious people, I think, become a lot easier yeah. once you, yeah, once you're able to make it not about absolute yes or absolute no, but just about I'm, I'm provisionally not believing that because there aren't really good reasons to yet. Yeah,
1: I agree. I think it makes conversations so much easier because it can close the ground between you and you can find common ground you know maybe edge towards a more common understanding of Mm. areas you agree on even if you don't agree on everything but it requires a certain humility and and i think people who are you know maybe atheist or skeptical naturalistic thinkers might will often criticize you know the spiritual or the religious for being dogmatic and closed-minded and fixed and maybe sometimes over confident and over arrogant but of course n- most naturalistic people often come across as quite arrogant and overconfident yeah you know we have the evidence we have the science we have the studies we've done it all here's the answer you know every, anyone who doesn't believe this is an idiot too and i think you know even people with a naturalistic worldview could um benefit from focusing a little bit more on the humility that that credence approach brings you know we could be wrong there is always new evidence and um even crazy ideas have proven to be right in the past. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. But what what irritates me, though, about that disjoint between the religious and the irreligious in, in terms of who is the more arrogant is that the, the religious person will hide behind humility as a way of making incredibly arrogant claims about... I mean, it's it's frankly yeah. enormously <laughs> arrogant to claim that you know that you know with any certainty what hap- things that we all know we don't know. Like, we know that we don't know what happens after we die, we know that we don't know what the purpose of the cosmos is like these are huge mysteries there are no mysteries more profound we know that we don't understand the nature of consciousness and what our, what the relationship between our lives on this planet is to the purpose of the universe like these are huge questions and for a religious person to say that they know what the purpose of the cosmos is and they know what happens after you die and then to point at the at the atheist and say the atheist thinks that they're so arrogant knowing everything about the universe when ours is not to question why because the universe is more magical than anything that you could fathom is like an enormous bait and switch that does frustrate me yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: And and me too and i think we we sometimes forget how outlandish the claims of even the most moderate religious worldviews are i mean uh it's not just you know the, the fundamentalist religious views that you know go to extreme places even moderate religions have some absolutely outlandish crazy claims
0: yeah i mean in some respects the the fundamentalist is easier to get your arms around because if you truly believe that the creator of the universe wrote a book then very well I like i understand that (laughs) worldview i don't agree with it but um it's internally consistent to yeah. to believe what's in that book i mean if the creator of the universe wrote a book you should pretty much do what's in that book like i certainly would if i believed that <laughs> it's a bit harder to know what to do with someone who believes that who says that they believe that the creator of the universe wrote a book but that we should cherry pick from the book all the things that just happen to comport with what secular modern secular society says like we shouldn't stone gay people to death or whatever, um, you know, and, and inter- reinterpret the book through the the mores of today. That that makes less sense to me than, frankly, the jihadist who flies planes into buildings. Like, he's, he's more dastardly, but he's sort of more internally consistent intellectually.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And you, t- you touch on what, one of the reasons why this is important, because um, some people will look at this philosophy and say, look, wh- why do you need this naturalism aspect baked in why don't you just focus on the compassion surely that's you know the most important thing if we're thinking about trying to make the world better if we all just care about each other and other sentient beings isn't that enough and I think there's a degree to which you might say well maybe but the reason I think the naturalistic stuff is important one is just intellectually I think we're more likely to be correct about the world um if we take a naturalistic approach, I just don't see that there's a viable alternative to honestly engaging with reality and understanding it. And understanding the world is quite useful if you want to make it better. So, you know, I think naturalism is important from that perspective. But it's also important because even for people who have a very broadly compassionate worldview and a genuinely compassionate worldview, if they have beliefs that aren't grounded in reality, that those ethics can be warped and, you know, otherwise good, compassionate People can do absolutely awful things. Um, you know, and you've hinted a couple of examples there as well. So, so there are some sort of supernatural or poorly founded beliefs that are just you know, silly or fun, or you know, don't really have much bearing on the world. That you know, I don't think the flat earthers have done much damage out in the world. But it seems there are many different types of supernatural thinking that, for various reasons, can lead people to do uh, bad things, either because. You know something is promoted as being more important than the lives and the suffering of sentient beings. You know, whether it's a deity or a, um, you know, a, an all-powerful leader or blood and soil or the nation state, uh, whether it's because that sort of theoretical universal compassion is then constrained or conditional to just our in-group or just people who follow the rules in the Bible, or you know, there's constraints put on that compassion and others are excluded and often sent to burn in hell. Um, so yeah so I think that that's part of the reason why I, I'm keen to have both the, the compassion baked in but also a naturalistic worldview because I, I think if either of those things slip um, essentially you know bad things can follow
0: let's right let me articulate a compassionate naturalistic world view for you which goes along the lines of uh, the natural world is an extraordinary place and it's populated with amazing sentient creatures and non-sentient living things presumably like plants and perhaps some of the very lower life forms like mollusks Mm -hmm. or whatever we can argue about the edges but that this whole cycle of life this whole Mufasa and Simba and the Pride Lands are operating (laughs) in in a in a sort of a beautiful orchestral dance of which humans are an intrinsic part and we find ourselves of nature not apart from nature and uh as omnivores we kill other animals and their nutrients come into us and then we poo them out and we die and, uh, and we create you know more of the the cycle of life and uh whilst that may not be maximally compassionate a maximally compassionate natural world would also be a dysfunctional one and that the natural order of things is for us to kill and consume animals what's wrong with that
1: Yeah, so that's quite an attractive way of thinking, certainly the modern sort of zeitgeist when we think about the climate change and environmental issues we're facing. So people move from, if you like, an anthropocentric view, one that's focused on humans and humans matter and we're the ones that count. They sort of skip over what I'm suggesting, which is a sentiocentric worldview, which says that all sentient beings matter, and they go to the next steps on the stage. As you said, either a sort of biocentrism that cares about all life, or even ecocentrism or a holism that says, look, it's about the entire system, the earth as a Gaia and so on. And I think there's much to be said for that way of thinking. It seems quite um, compassionate. you know. It's going even beyond where I am and saying, look, the whole system matters and even things that aren't sentient matter. Um, and from my perspective, I'd agree with some of the conclusions of that way of thinking because clearly the environment we all share even the non-sentient stuff, you know, rocks and rivers and plants and rivers and ecosystems are critically important for us as humans and all the other sentient beings that live in them. So I have um, what you might call an instrumental concern for all of those things. I don't think they warrant moral consideration in their own right because, you know, a river or rock or a tree, I don't think can experience suffering in the same way as you or I or the puppy behind me can. But I still share that concern for them and we should look after them and respect them and care for them and you know, help develop an environment that we can all flourish in. But where I think it goes wrong, and you hinted at this in the last part of your description, is what some people think of as the, you know, natural is good fallacy or the naturalist, naturalistic fallacy, where just because something is the way it is without major human intervention, by definition, it must be good or ethical or positive. So there's this sense that, you know, there is a circle of life. There is a system we must play our part. Um, And I think that's partly where it goes wrong. And and when you look under the covers of that way of thinking, often it's really just a veneer for focusing back on good old humans again. So, you know, we care about other humans in a normal way. uh, But our concern for the environment really is because we need it to survive we actually see other sentient beings as part of that environment that are there for us to use, again, for human purposes, for us to survive. And even the wider environment and ecosystem is there just to provide us, you know, ecosystem services to keep us in the right temperature range, to keep us with the right fresh water, and even to give us the sort of aesthetic pleasure that many environmentalists focus on when they think about the natural world. So I think when you scratch under the surface of some of those more expansive philosophies, um, often they're not quite as ethically generous as they seem, and they're really just a veneer that covers up a very anthropocentric worldview. Um, and that way of thinking, in essence, can excuse and allow us to continue causing massive catastrophic suffering and death to other beings. And if any ethical system you know, excuses or allows you know, that type of suffering and death, I think there's something going wrong with it.
0: Right. And I mean, you could also make the point that the worldview that I articulated, if you were actually going to take seriously the it's okay if it's part of the natural order of things argument, then there are all kinds of things that humans have traditionally done, like rape each other and slaughter each other's tribes and you know potentially yes and kill babies and maybe eat each other and uh there are all kinds of things that we've done that are perfectly natural to do and it's the circle of life yes it's the circle of life to eat babies (laughs) um and you know there are all kinds of things that we currently do that are not at all natural uh like wearing eyeglasses or going to the moon that, you know or <laughs> inventing antibiotics uh, or you yeah. know inventing vaccines against coronavirus uh, or that are not part farming of uh, right no but i'm saying that there are good things right there are there are things that, yeah, that I yeah. regard as being uh, positive diversions from oh, of course yeah, yeah. like uh, like a cor- like a coronavirus vaccine um so that's where the naturalistic fallacy becomes a yeah fallacy. it's not a
1: guide either way it's not a good guide either way it's to you know th- so th- from where
0: Yes. So, from where are we getting our our morals in your in your world? How, so that, how do you know that factory farming is wrong?
1: Well, so it's a, it's an assessment. So the, the moral consideration for sentient beings, I guess one way into this, and people differ as to how they get to this conclusion, but is to think about why we care about humans in the first place. So you know, going back to I guess the sort of Descartes starting point. Our own experiences is, you know, our ability to have those experiences is probably one of the things we're most confident of. You know, it's almost hard to avoid. Even if my brain is in a vat or I'm, you know, uh, subroutine running in a teenager simulation, I'm still experiencing something because I can, you know, that's what everything else gets filtered through. So I'm very confident I experience things. And I think when we think about why do we care about other humans, it's really because we, have a credence that they have experiences too and in a sense morality to me and I think uh, to most people is just a decision to care about the experiences other people are having Um, so in the same way as you might say okay we care about other humans because we know they too can suffer and flourish you know I don't like suffering I'm pretty sure you don't too morality is my decision to care about that this sentientistic approach is just logically saying, okay, well, if we care about other beings that c- can suffer and can flourish, um, shouldn't we just extend that to all entities that have the capacity to suffer? And um, you know, Jeremy Bentham was another famous dead guy that said this. I think it's 1797 or something. Where, where again, he asked that question. He said, you know, when we're thinking about moral consideration, the question is, can they suffer? Um, so that's how we get to focusing on sentience as you know the basic characteristic for moral consideration the, the qualifier if you like um, but to answer your question about you know why is factory farming bad requires you to take some extra steps but i think in factory farming they're quite simple steps because um, whether or not you take this sentientist start and then apply you know utilitarian approach or a deontological approach using rules or a virtue ethics that says it's Good to be kind to sentient beings or a care ethic that talks about care you know almost whichever ethical system you then choose to put on top of thinking about sentience um when you look at the you know pleasures and benefits that flow from farming animal farming and you look at the suffering and the pain and the death that's caused i think it's quite hard to come up with any sort of calculus that really suggests
0: that's justifiable mm it's interesting to then, I, I guess the the unspoken question that underlies a lot of this is, is there any justification for uh treating other sentient creatures as tools to the ends as tool to tools to human ends? like what let let's grant that if I'm starving in the frozen tundra, I'm allowed to kill uh a deer and eat mm. it do we grant are we granting that
1: it, it depends So different uh, this is one of the areas where i can tell you my personal opinion but sentientism itself is irritatingly neutral because it just says evidence reason and compassion for all sentient beings um and that compassion for sentient beings or that moral consideration for sentient beings doesn't mean you must never it's never acceptable to cause suffering or death to another sentient being you know it's not a sort of pacifist. Um, sort of extreme view where it's never justifiable to cause suffering. It just says you have to have moral consideration and take each entity's um, sentience into account as you're working out what to do. So it doesn't necessarily give us cut or dried answers to lots of ethical problems. You have to put an ethical system on top of that. Um, But I think what I would say is that it it does suggest that you need to seriously take into account the experience of each individual sentient being. And in a way, that doesn't necessarily change between the different scenarios. So you might imagine, you know, the deer that you have to kill because it's a survival question for you. That deer still goes through maybe an analogous experience to one that's on a, uh, you know, a pig on a factory farm. So in a way, nothing really changes the moral weight of that side of the argument, you know, the victim's perspective. What does change is whether or not there's a justification for that. So on one hand, you know, there's... Your own survival. On the other hand, there might be a marginal taste preference or a social norm around the consumption of a particular product. Um, so hopefully that helps. It, I mean, it, it does a bit. I'm
0: not. I'm not sure that I'd concede that the that even on the suffering uh, side of the ledger, the deer being killed in the wild after having lived a perfectly happy life the way that a deer should is the same as a pig in a factory farm because the, the reason we oh, no. object to pigs in factory farms is not just because it's scary and painful for them to get killed it's because they have to endure a life of torture and torment uh leading up to that point as well whereas, so, oh, whereas t- with the deer it's
1: oh i yeah. totally agree if you're thinking yeah. about the life of the animal as a whole you know i there's some very interesting work going on around wild animal suffering at the moment which implies that the average wild animal doesn't necessarily have a great time, too. But I think yeah. I think, uh, but I think you're right on on average that you know the life of a factory farmed animal is is worse than that of a free living deer. Well, uh, in also, the I mean,
0: even if the even if the deer had a really shitty life in the, in the forest, at least I'm not morally complicit in that. I mean, that's yeah. not my fault. Whereas with, I, with factory farming, the the pig is put there for my benefit.
1: Agree, and I think and I think even in that even in a tough wild existence the factory farmed existence is still another step worse i guess i was more thinking about you know the moment of the of the killing itself yeah it, yeah again there, there may well be differences there but you know not, neither being wants to die both will suffer fear and stress both will suffer physical pain and you know both will have their lives ended so it's more in that context Yes. Yeah. all right so let's
0: practical. let's flip to the other side of the ledger then which is the justification for doing the killing um as you say in the case of the factory farmed pig it's usually just that I have a mild preference for the taste of bacon over the taste of peanut butter on toast, yeah, um, yeah. right? which doesn't seem like a very compelling, it, it seems really, really weak as a justification for constructing the entire edifice of these vast hog farms, especially mm-hmm. in places like the United States where they're so appallingly mistreated. Um, so taste preference isn't very good, but that's why I'm trying to get us to a point at which we can agree on uh, the killing of an animal so that we can sort of build your worldview out from there. So if I'm going to die and I'm in the tundra, I mean, I would almost argue that it, it's conceivably, <laughs> there are circumstances under which it would be conceivably ethical for me to kill another human being yeah. and beat <laughs> that human being. If it was, if I was strong and going to survive and there was another human who was probably going to die uh, and let's just give that human a criminal past as well and say that they did some horrible things and that they were a sociopath or a serial killer, then I think we can grant that that maybe I kill that human being and I eat them in order to survive if I have to. So if we're going to grant that, then I think we can grant that I get to kill a deer. Can we?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would go along with that personally. Again, sentientism as a worldview doesn't tell us the answer it just gives us the raw material of what we need to take into account but personally i'd I'd personally i'd go along with that perspective yeah
0: so so then I
1: I i don't think it it doesn't negate the you know the wrong that's done to the victim um but it does give us a justification that i think would be you know could get to be a point where it's reasonable
0: right and that justification is still predicated on sentientism because i'm the sentient entity doing The killing. If I'm a robot, if I'm an artificial intelligence, where the lights are out, but I just want to survive because I've been programmed to survive, and I'm just I'm R two D two, but I'm unfeeling, and there's nothing that it's like to be me. And then I kill the deer. Then, in under sentientism, that's definitely not justified because the deer is having experiences, and I'm not.
1: Yeah, I think that you know the experience of the victim and then the negative is countered in terms of um, its impact on a sentient being. In the same way as the justification or the positive. You know, rationale also has to be grounded in uh, something to do with the sentient being as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so we've basically agreed that there's there are circumstances under which I can use a sentient creature against its will and inflict pain and suffering on it as simply regarding it as a tool for my benefit now that is characteristic of the way that all of human civilization treats the natural world at the moment but with total impunity so can you give me an impression of how you personally like map out the difference between the two like what kind of circumstance under which is it okay for me to for me to treat other sentient creatures as tools of my, for my own benefit yeah and again i do want to reiterate that different people who use
1: sentientism will differ with my personal opinion here as well um but I, I think there's a there's an interesting thought experiment two interesting thought experiments we can do just to test our intuitions here and one is to say okay well let's think about how this situation would apply as you've just done in the survival situation with a human um and that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to accord humans the same moral consideration as all non-human sentience but it's an interesting thought experiment because it can help you work out if you're apply a completely different ethical system when you think about humans to if you're thinking about non-humans and I'd suggest there's a problem there so that's one interesting way into the question the other one again as with standard human ethics is to consider the perspective of the victim and, and to genuinely do that because it's very easy to categorize the victim in a certain way so that we can then ignore their perspective and I think it's important to you know, consider them as an individual, and with the limited tools we've got, imagine what it's actually like to be in their situation, and that can help balance things out as well. And where I think that gets you to is a situation where you know there are some thought experiments and some extreme survival situations where you can imagine a justification being built for you know harming or killing another being, uh, another sentient being. But the, in the vast majority of situations where we interact with non-human animals today, You know, obviously farming looms largest in that picture, given, you know, I think people may not be familiar with the scale, but roughly I think it's 80 to 100 billion land animals per year. And it's very hard to count the fishes, but it's something around one and a half to two trillion fishes a year are
0: farmed or caught and killed for human consumption. Wait, are you saying more than a trillion, a thousand billion fish? Yes. Yeah. Estimates about yeah, to, to two trillion. trillion. So let's just, just to put that in context, we've got eight billion people on the planet. Yeah, is that right? And you're yeah. saying there are 10, at least ten times as many non-human animals being That's killed by animals. humans on land alone, yeah. uh, just to just to eat every yeah. year. And, and, then, and for other
1: animal products as well, but mo- yeah, most of it is food and drink. Right,
0: and then more than 100 to maybe 200 times as many humans as exist on the planet uh, in terms of the fish that we're killing every year in the oceans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the scale is absolutely breathtaking. Wow. Okay, so, yep, carry on. So,
1: and, and when you look at that that scale and you say, okay, how much of that is justified through a human need to survive – uh, the answer is ends up being pretty close to zero. I think. I think so. For the vast bulk of it, we can look at edge cases, and we we can consider some you know tough um, thought experiments and things around the fringes. But it's pretty clear that the bulk of that uh, activity is driven by social norms, marginal taste preferences, traditions, cultural preferences, and ironically, in the current context, it's not even good for humans either. So. The scale you talked about is interesting because, you know, one of the other things people will talk about as they're worried about the environmental crisis or the climate crisis is they'll say, look, there's, there's just too many humans on the planet. You know, we're maybe we're overpopulated. We're using too many resources. The planet can't cope in terms of fresh water and energy. And look at all the emissions we're kicking out. Um, and you can see that might be a tempting mode of thought. You can say there's only one planet. There's eight billion humans. Now, our population growth is slowing, but you know we're still going to maybe get to nine, ten billion in the next few decades. You know, how can we cope with that? And it's put in a different context when you recognize the scale of animal farming, as you've just laid out. You know, if we haven't got enough space for eight billion humans, how the hell are we sustaining eighty to a hundred billion land animals and then a couple of trillion fish on top of that? So the actual human footprint on the planet. There's some fascinating analysis. Um, if you look up the R World and Data site around land use, which says, okay, here's the entire planet. Let's work about work out which part of that is, you know, actually habitable land, because obviously some of it is, um, you know, impossible to live on. Yeah. Uh, and with once you've got the habitable habitable land left, I think it's less than one percent of that land is actually lived on by humans. Um, so it's a tiny proportion our footprint on the planet is actually pretty small. So you say, well, hold on, if we're only living on 1% of the habitable land, why does it feel like we're you know, burning the planet and using up so many resources? And, and the big chunk that is driving deforestation and deprecation of the wild and using up a lot of the uh, remaining habitable land on the planet is agriculture. Um, and that's not just animal agriculture, it's also arable as well. But then you look at, the fact that much of the arable plant agriculture is grown to feed the animals. And you start to realize how much of the agricultural land is used purely for animal agriculture. I think the rough numbers are that um, animal agriculture uses 78% of the available agricultural land, uh, but only produces 18% of the calories and something like 36% of the protein. Um, wow. And so 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 it's that footprint of the animal agriculture industry that coming back to your earlier point means actually there's a negative justification for doing this just from a selfishly human point of view it's it's not even a a benefit to us
0: not to mention the diseases of overeating uh, and the you know the consequences of feeding antibiotics to factory farmed animals and antibiotic resistance i mean there are all kind of kinds of uh, yeah. other downsides to it but just sticking on the the ethics of it for from the animal's perspective for a moment. So mm. you've got all this, you've got all these animals. Uh, I've I've just got the list here of the amount of meat production globally in 2019. Uh, chicken and pigs, chickens and pigs are, are neck and neck as the as by far the most consumed animals uh, in terms of the tons of their flesh that that, that humans consume. Yeah. Uh, then about half of that is is beef and then way down below at the at the you know sort of less than one tenth of the amount of chicken and pig are lamb goat turkey duck buffalo <laughs> and then below that are goose rabbit and horse yeah, um, yeah. so basically and, we're
1: talking an and there's an important thing to do on the ethical front which is we've got to convert that tonnage which is how we normally talk about animals as products and commodities we've got to convert that to lives individually yes and when you do that, fish jump to the top of the chart and
0: then chicken. I think this might the- be – I think I might just be looking at land animals because fish aren't even in the top 10 ah, okay, yet, so yeah. that must be So just all later. the land animals,
1: chicken are so far out in front, it's unbelievable in terms of actual – Yeah, right.
0: Well, th- uh, this is an interesting – I mean, I have – I think it was actually Peter Singer who, was t- who I was interviewing who was making the point that, um, you know, if you want to think about units of consciousness – then, in some ways, the people who think that they're doing the right thing by not eating red meat, and uh you know, oh, I don't wanna you know be cruel and kill cows, so I'm just gonna eat chicken um you know, I' somewhat mistaken because you can you can eat a half a chicken at a single sitting, so you need to kill <laughs> a lot more <laughs> animals than just having a slice off the bum of a of a cow um so yeah, yes, you those- get to this
1: sort of deaths per meal ratio, which is pretty morbid and unpleasant from mm. uh, but but i think it's important because as you say when you look at you know the big environmental problem with animal farming is its sheer inefficiency so if you take a load of plants feed it through an animal you basically lose nearly all of it you know it's turned into shit and piss and blood and heat and you know hardly any of it gets used that's why the protein output is so low compared to the plants you feed into it um, but that varies a lot by different animals so that's that's partly why cows are you know one of the most environmentally impactful because they're so inefficient at taking you know soil wheat or even grass in one end and producing mm. products at the other end so as you say many people for environmental reasons are saying okay look at the methane emissions from cows look at the land use look at the water use look at the pollution let's move to a, a you know a more efficient um type of animal like a chicken um I guess the the two points are one they're still breathtakingly inefficient compared to just eating plants ourselves, which fortunately we can do. <laughs> but the the e- important ethical point, exactly as you said, is you could be shifting your diet from to try and re- reduce the environmental impact by going from cows to chickens, but you're actually causing you know it, unimaginably more suffering and death by making that
0: switch. So right, you know, it, it, it's you're important. More, to not- yeah, you're getting more kilos of protein out of each, uh, input of, of vegetation, but, uh, it's requiring more minds to be, to endure horrible experiences and then slaughter in order to produce that protein because it's a smaller animal. Um the like other thing which that is, I want which to j- which is why it's great that
1: we have we do have another alternative, these things called plants that we can explain. <laughs> <use. laughs> <laughs> uh
0: the other thing that I want to touch on though here before we leave this kind of uh, thought experiment is the sophistication of the animal's sentience. Right, hmm. you I mean you pointed to this at the beginning of the conversation, but let's let's look at this macabre chart of chickens and pigs comprising so many hundreds of millions of tons of uh, of flesh a year, and then you've got your cattle and your sheep, well below that. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that sheep are idiots <clears throat> and that pigs are smart. <laughs> Hush, I think there's a, <laughs> I think there's there's some scientific basis for. Uh, looking at the sociability of pigs, uh, the intellect of pigs—they uh, are, uh, you know—they exhibit a lot of characteristics of, of inter- that we associate with intellect and um, and goodwill and sort of planning and aspirations. And they certainly have—they understand what the difference is between well, they feel what the difference is between a flourishing life and a, a painful life, denuded of all hope and affection. Mm. Let's let's assume for the sake of argument that sheep are as dumb as they look and that they really live lives of um, extremely rudimentary uh, planning and almost no sense of themselves as creatures throughout time. But just, you know, th- what it's like to be a sheep is just I see things and I smell things and then a minute later I have no idea who I am. You know, they're basically Alzheimer's patients all the way. They, they're just... Uh, they're just having experiences but they have no idea that tomorrow is ever going to come or that yesterday ever happened um then if you can click your fingers and you can suddenly make lamb the most popular meat and you can eliminate pork is that a win well i mean you can always make a bad thing slightly
1: less bad but um there are always much better alternatives than that as well we'll come back to plants later as you said so i think the sentientist perspective doesn't necessarily tell us you know how richly sentient a being is or whether or not we should grade them and how it just says follow the science but i guess there's some points of caution here one is that the more we understand about non-human animals and their experiences their consciousness and their sentience the more conscious and sentient they seem to be it only seems to go one way i haven't come across any research yet where someone's done a study and gone oh you know there's actual actually less cognitive or uh, experiential capacity in this animal than we thought there was it always seems to get richer and richer well experiential
0: capacity maybe but we we routinely find that animals are dumber or like just they're bumping up against the limits of their own planning cognition And so on. Like I mean, it depends. Sometimes I I agree, but I think I think in
1: in in general, um, you know, our expectations aren't reined in, and they're generally pushed in a particular direction. And you know, that's certainly true of chickens. It's actually true of the research I've seen on sheep. Um, You can see what's happened with you know octopuses, corvids. Uh, pigs, as you've already mentioned. So I think we need to really apply that prudence when we're thinking about, you know, what is their experience likely to be like as we go through this process? You know, I do think that, you know, there there are likely to be animals that will have maybe a richer experience and some that will have a less rich experience. Uh, And yes, you know, harming and killing the one with less rich experiences would be less bad. But uh, the other point of caution, I guess, again, is to bring it back to thinking about the human analogue, because, just different non-human animals have different cognitive capabilities, different abilities to plan for the future. You know, some might just be experiencing things moment to moment, um, you know, like a, a new baby. Others might feel ex- ex- existential angst or be able to plan for the future. So, I think that's another interesting cautionary point to say. Sometimes you might be able to find those analogs for a simpler sentient being within humans, and let's think about how we might treat those humans differently too. Um, so I, yeah, you know, I just, I think you're right. You can find ways of doing things that are, are less or more bad, but when there are obviously radically better alternatives available, I'm not sure there's enormous value in, you know, tweaking things at the margins.
0: Right. And your point about the difference the different human beings is that if it were the case that we could pat ourselves on the back for eating more lamb and less pork then it might also be the case that we should pat ourselves on the back for eating brain-damaged human beings instead of killing other people. Yeah, as an analogy.
1: And again, I don't want to sort of appeal to intuition here, but I think it's a useful check on ourselves to say, you know, hold on, are are we applying a fair, consistent ethics here? Or have we got some sort of special magical mode of ethics that only applies for humans because we're special?
0: the you know there's an interesting thing that i'm trying to get my head around here to do with you keep using the word experience mm. and my intuition keeps going back to something along the lines of intellect planning cognition and you know you mentioned bentham earlier who famously said the question for about animal rights is not can it think but can it feel and i remember speaking to dawkins about this and he he was saying that actually counterintuitively, it's possible that that animals that we regard as being more stupid and therefore more justifiable to kill may have an experience of pain and suffering that exceeds that of more intelligent animals. Because if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, the intelligent animal has an additional way to protect itself, which is its intellect. Like, a human being is full of thoughts as well as feelings of pain and fear. But he was just speculating. He was saying, we don't know this for sure, but it's conceivable that if you're a rodent, then your experience of fear and pain have to be dialed up a bit more intense than a humans do because you're not capable of reasoning your way out of danger. You have to rely exclusively on, your, on what it's like to be you. And so I wonder whether or not you even think that intellect and cognition and planning and love and flourishing and a sense of yourself as a being existing in the world are relevant considerations at all in determining how we treat other sentient creatures, or are they entirely moot? Or may they may they in fact flow the in the opposite direction, and we have to give more consideration to dumber animals?
1: Yeah, I think I think um, Richard makes a really important point there. it could flow the other way. I think. They can be relevant, but only in the way that they affect the experiencing. That's the way I'd put it. So I think in some circumstances, you know, there are things that as a human, you know, I can have positive or negative experiences that I don't think a sheep is likely to be able to have. So, you know, that might give me a little bit more credit in some aspects. But I think Richard makes a really important point that actually are. More advanced human cognitive capabilities can actually help us mitigate suffering. You know, we can meditate, we can understand the context of something, we can understand why something is happening, and that might actually reduce our suffering. And again, you can draw that back into a human context. You know, there might be something painful that a small child has to undergo where they actually suffer more viscerally than an adult because an adult understands, you know, the benefits of the thing the doctor is having to do, whereas the Young child might not, mm. and there's also some interesting research even about the different pos- potential um, experience of time that different non-human animals might have, um, and it's possible that you know, some of the insects, for example, might actually experience in a more condensed, accelerated way per second than than we might. So again, I think I think you're right. We need to be very careful and very prudent here about simplistic assumptions that you know if you're a less intelligent animal you suffer less, you may actually suffer more. Um, and there may actually be different, you know, radically different modes of experiencing that we don't fully understand. And I think that's still grounded in some way and that we do share an evolutionary history with other non-human animals. So I don't think we're talking about something that's completely and utterly distinct, but I think the variety and that sort of phylogenetic tree is, is very rich and we should be prudent about you know, trying to uh, estimate what those experiences might be like for non-humans.
0: So we said we'd come back to eating vegetables and trying to find out alternative sources of protein. Are you vegan?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I had quite a long journey. to I was um, vegetarian from my mid-20s and then been vegan for about four years now. So it took me a while. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is it work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, it's, it's a decision I've never um, regretted, never looked back on, don't ever see changing. Um and I'm super comfortable. And it's 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 a strange process to go through because I think the hardest thing and the reason it took me so long, and it's almost embarrassing to say this, was, was it was a social norm thing. Um, you know, I went vegetarian at that point for the same ethical reasons I'm explaining now. You know, I didn't want to needlessly cause suffering and death to other sentient beings. But I stopped at vegetarianism because at that stage, it felt like vegetarianism was a bit weird, but it wasn't as weird as veganism. You know, that's really weird. <laughs> mm. And and it's almost embarrassing to say in an ethical context that a social norm sort of held me back or constrained what I was doing. But that's just the way it is for nearly everybody on the planet. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where you look at the decision before and it can feel a little daunting, you know, socially, behaviorally, habits changing, practicalities you've got to work through. Um, but once you've done it, from talking to many people who have gone vegan, the vast majority find it was much easier than they thought it would be. And it just feels like a natural, um, you know, very obvious step to take. And you reduce your cognitive dissonance. You don't have this illusion that you've achieved some sort of perfect pure state because there is no ethically pure state. You know, even, um, you know, the strictest vegan is still unwittingly causing some degree of suffering and death in the way they live their lives. There's no purity here to achieve, but it does feel like you've taken, a you know, a strong positive step to, a more compassionate way of living.
0: And what about those edge cases that people must constantly, you know, bang on about? I mean, you sort of pointed at it earlier when we were talking about me hunting the deer in the tundra, but, uh, you know, and saying that, look, wild animals, it's not a, it's not a terrific life for a wild animal either, necessarily. Uh, and if a vegan, a non-vegan uh, uses the uses animal products in some ways that might be completely benign to sentient creatures like, you know, bees go around making their honey. I have the honey, Uh, not a big deal. I don't think it bothers the bee. Uh, I don't think bees have property rights really. Um, You might extend that to eating oysters. The oyster probably doesn't like it very much, but I don't know what it means to say that a mollusk likes anything or dislikes anything terribly much. It doesn't have a centralized uh, brain. Its nervous system doesn't come together like, like that. Um, yeah. Where are you with those cases?
1: So uh, again, there's a massive diversity of different sort of sentientist views on those, and people will disagree. Um, personally, I take quite a, a sort of prudent line on those things, and that I try not to participate in anything which involves, you know, use or exploitation of animals. And I, f- I fail, of course, but um, that's what I try to I try to do. And on the boundaries of sentience, I also grant, you know, some entities the benefit of the doubt that others. You know, might not. So even with the simpler insects or with bivalves, I still grant them the benefit of the doubt. But there are, are other people who are sentientists who are you know, confident enough that muscles can't experience suffering, that they don't think they were not moral consideration. So I think there's space for a diversity of views there. I guess my the one thing I would say is that when people think through these edge cases, it, just to watch out for our own motivated reasoning, because it's um, very easy to sort of drift back into a position where you know we ho- we hope for an outcome and then we sort of try and line our reasoning up to lead us in that direction so mm. you can see that around you know honey production for example if people actually look at the facts of how that process works they might find that it's not quite the you know wonderful happy human bee symbiosis that they thought it was when people think about you know another common case that comes up is someone might just consume venison for example and they say look these deer live you know happy lives in the wild they're shot cleanly and quickly without pain um you know by a professional and we need to do it anyway because they're overpopulated but again when you look into that situation and you realize that the deer estates that are selling the venison are also explicitly breeding more deer and then saying okay now they're overpopulated so come up with your guns and shoot them uh And then you also do what I suggested earlier on and take the perspective of the victim living in the woods with its family. Again, all of a sudden, something that from a sort of motivated reasoning standpoint sounded temptingly reasonable, you know, the cracks appear pretty quickly. So that's the overarching point I'd make even on some of the edge cases is let's just be prudent. Let's think about the perspective of the victims, if there are victims, um, and watch out for that human motivated reasoning because we are very, very good at it.
0: Yeah, right. Yes. Granted. But the fact that, that motivated reasoning could be tainting our arguments does not itself uh, negate those arguments. Um, I mean, no. the, you know, I, I, I eat kangaroo about once a week and I use all the same arguments that you were just articulating about venison. Um, but nobody's breeding more. Kangaroos, and they—they they really are a lot of them, <laughs> and uh, they really are going to die one way or another uh, in probably pretty horrible circumstances, uh, dying of thirst or whatever it might be. Mm. And yeah, i so in I, a way,
1: I, in a way, it's in a way, it's saving them from a worse death.
0: I wouldn't say that it's a moral act. Um, it yeah. may be, but I, but that's not why I think it's okay. I just think it's okay because either way, it's not a it's not a lot worse than the alternative. For them, yeah. And it's considerably yeah, better for me.
1: I guess the other thing to consider is, um, you know, are there other alternatives? So I think one of the things that quite often happens, and this gets us into a fascinating space of wild animal ethics and thinking about, you know, there's vast amounts of suffering in the wild, arguably even more than there are in our farms, um, is are there better alternatives? And a, a typical human pattern it tends to be if you see a problem in the wild whether it's overpopulation or um, environmental destruction tends to be to jump to culling of some sort um, and there's really fascinating work going on that says look if we actually grant moral consideration to these beings as well rather than just treating them as a you know a thing in the in the environment, are there some alternative approaches we can use that uh, you know on the extreme end, can be about you know genetic modification or you know radical bioengineering of the wild to reduce the amount of suffering. But in the more immediate space, there are some really pragmatic, safe, straightforward things we can do around vaccines for non-human animals to help them with disease, um, sterilization or contraception programs that can manage depopulation instead of culling, you know, fencing, and you know other sort of practical interactions with the wild. Um, so again it's just another point of caution really is to say look if you think about the perspective of the victims involved in this process as you would you know with a human um you know it can lead you to some more compassionate responses um because i don't think many people are thinking you know of human op- overpopulation as a justification for culling hopefully there are some mm, <laughs> mm, mm. If you want to get into eco fashions but uh, but the <laughs> But again, I think it's an interesting check and a test to say, let's think about the perspective of the victim. Is there a more compassionate way of solving this problem, bearing in mind all of the different interests? And there may not be. You know, there may still be really hard calls and there may be some awful things we need to do. But um, let's at least bear those perspectives in mind.
0: Jamie, we've been uh, talking here as if we accept uh, that there is, you know, we've been sort of talking under the umbrella of the initial worldview that I articulated about there being mm. a kind of a, a natural order that is worthy of, of of some sort of respect. Let's just, I don't want to let you go without addressing an alternative point of view, which is a more traditional, old-fashioned worldview that probably dominated until the 60s 70s maybe 80s which is that that humans really are different that we are obviously unique in the animal kingdom we're not a part of a symbiosis we you know obviously religious people have reasons for believing this because they think that our souls were you know make us unique from other animals but even if you're not religious you can look at our tool making you can look at our going to the moon you can look at our buildings and our vaccines and you can go you know what we deserve we are deserving of a certain consideration that other sentient creatures just aren't and that gives us a certain entitlement um not an entitlement to be needlessly cruel but an entitlement to like to the, basically the argument about well if you're going to discriminate against animals for being dumber than us, then you might as well be eating uh, brain damaged babies that like that doesn't cut past muster because there's something unique that humans are, u- are, are deserving of unique consideration that other animals aren't. What's your attitude to that?
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm sympathetic
0: to the fact that, you know, humans are different and, and we are
1: special. I think um, we're amazing animals. Um, at the same time, we are animals. You know, we do share an evolutionary tree with the rest of life you know we're not magically distinct as you say in some sort of supernatural way with the soul or being made in the image of a deity Um, but even under a naturalistic way of thinking um you know we are we have amazing capabilities and we there are things we can do that are um you know breathtaking and phenomenal both for good and for ill of course um but i would suggest that with those capabilities should come responsibilities and that includes responsibilities for those with less power, with less ability to shape the world and with less ability to you know, look after themselves and have good lives. And I think that philosophy is widely accepted, not by everybody, but widely accepted within our species, you know, just because certain countries have distinctive power, distinctive capabilities, shouldn't but de facto give them more moral consideration than countries or cultures or groups that maybe are weaker or have less capabilities um you know in a way that's capability argument you know most people within the human species would say well that's not really morally relevant what's morally relevant is the capacity to suffer and to flourish not how powerful you are so and i suggest we should take that approach that we would see as problematic within the human species and say, well we should apply that across all sentient beings too um So that's how I'd counter it. Because I think when you dig into it and you say, well, okay, what is it that makes humans special? It almost ends up begging the question because the answer is, well, because we're human. And okay, well, yeah, but what is it about that? You know, when you're talking about the young child or um, that doesn't have these extra capabilities, or you're talking about a disadvantaged human that doesn't have this power, um, you know, what is it about them? And the answer is, well, they're human. And to me, that's a, you know, it's a labeling Uh, rather than pointing at something that is deeply morally salient. Mm. But I think the main point would be with those capabilities should come responsibilities for others that have less power than us.
0: Yeah, right. What do you think sentience is? Like, I mean, we're talking about moral philosophy. Sentience (laughs) is about about ethics, right? But to to pivot to, like, ontology, uh, why, why are, if we are animals, why are animals sentient at all? So this is
1: another area where sentientists will disagree about what sentience actually is. So, um, and we can get into some of the weird uh, ranges of possibility there. But my personal view, and I think this is probably the most common, is that um, I, th- I see sentience really as a class of information processing. Um, and I don't mean that in a sort of narrow computer sense with hardware and software and so on. I mean in a very rich, broad sense of information processing. Um, of matter and energy interacting in patterns and flows. So I think it's not all information processing. I think it's just a particular class of information processing. And I think it most likely evolved sometime during the Precambrian in quite simple animals because it proved useful in an evolutionary sense for an entity to be able to develop a very simple representation of itself, of other agents around it, um, and its environment as a whole to model those things. Um, and also to actually feel something positive about moving towards good things and feel something negative about moving away from bad things. So I think that that was probably the genesis of, to use a religious term, you know, the genesis yeah. of sentience was because it was evolutionarily adaptive. Um, and then, you know, it's just gone from there and followed through and a dizzying diversity of different types of sentient experiences until we reach the, um, you know, the portfolio of sentient beings that have still survived the evolutionary process today
0: why would it be evolutionarily adaptive for it to feel like something to be alive? Like you can imagine a simple animal doing all the things that a simple animal does without it actually feeling like something to do them. It could just be like a sophisticated computer program that is following algorithms. Why does it have to feel something? Why does it have to have pain? I mean, it it has to have some sort of pain encoded in its information processing as a signal to not do this thing and to avoid circumstances in which it's getting hurt but there's no reason why it should have what philosophers call the qualia the the actual you know the the real visceral sense of being in pain
1: yeah and i'm not sure whether it whether it is something that's evolutionarily required or not i think you know it happened to happen that way but whether it could have happened a different way and we could be living in a universe of Um, You know, entities today that are doing the same sorts of things, but experiencing nothing, you know, the lights not being on. Um, You know, I'm not sure. Um, And as you say, in a way, you know, a thermostat is driven towards certain actions by its environment. Um, But there's something distinct, there seems to be something distinct about the processing that's going on in our minds and the minds of other sentient beings that is uh, over and above the sensory processing. And the muscular processing, and even some of the basic decision making. Um, so it's it's unclear at the moment. And neurology and artificial intelligence research and um, uh, neuroscience is, you know, I guess that's the raw material of what they're working on at the moment. Um, but it does seem like there are um, particular types of information processing going on that seem to be correlated with, as you said, qualia, consciousness, and sentience, and. A, actually most of what our brains are doing doesn't seem to be conscious or Mm. if if it is conscious it's conscious in a way that the bit of consciousness that's talking to you now isn't aware (laughs) which is a um so 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 for many people and for some sentientists as well that sense of qualia as being distinct from the physical processing and the information processing leads them to suggest that it must be something separate, you know, a sort of dualist way of thinking where we have the matter and the processing and the information processing, and then separately there's this consciousness thing. So some sentientists do think it's, um, you know, something like that. Some sentientists are more dualist. Um, uh, Others think that it's possible that at a very minimal level any information processing might have some sense of awareness. So even, you know, an electron spinning around an atom might have some super basic awareness. That's not a, a view I ascribe to, but, you know, you may have heard of panpsychism and people who yeah. in that way. I think of a, a super expansive version of consciousness. I guess mine is, is, is a bit more classical and I think a little bit more mainstream, which is just it's a class of information processing that evolved for these reasons. And this just happens to be what it feels like to run that class of information processing. And you know, the sense that qualia is something distinct and almost has this magical central feeling to us um, is just the way it is. You know, you might call it an illusion. You might call it a, a, a an epiphenomenon. But it, I think it is just the information processing. I don't think there's something distinct. But other sentientists will disagree with me.
0: Right. And lastly, you mentioned AI there. Does that mean that if if information processing is you know gets sufficient if as it gets sufficiently complicated it can it can feel like something to be doing it and if that's what sentience is then you believe that sentience could or will emerge in artificial systems and if if it did then we would have to accord them the same rights that you accord the the bees whose honey you don't take
1: yeah, in concept, in concept. I mean, it might be breathtakingly hard. It might be very difficult. Um, you know, we might struggle to assess it and infer it in the same way as we do with other non-human animals. But at least conceptually, I don't see why not. I don't see why, you know, if ultimately we discover that sentience and consciousness is a class of information processing, I don't see why that information processing can only run in a biological substrate. You know, why, why couldn't it run in something else as well? I don't think it would happen by accident because I think it would either have to come through some sort of pseudo-evolutionary process that drove it that direction, or we'd probably need to design it in ourselves. And there's some people thinking uh, in the AI safety and existential risk spaces at the moment, trying to help us get ahead of that game and make sure we don't do it by accident. Um, But in concept, yeah, I don't see why not. Um, But again, most sentientists, their priority is very much on the 8 billion human sentience and the maybe a couple of trillion farm Mm. sentience and the quadrillion wild sentience that are out there. Uh, today, but I think it's interesting to have a, a philosophy be future proofed and and ready and to, instead of it focusing on you know humans or animals or some other sort of arbitrary characteristic that we put at the center, you know the characteristic I think is of real moral salience which is sentience so yeah i'm I'm open-minded about the idea of artificial sentience.
0: Jamie, it's great to talk to you. I'm going to go and uh, eat some meat guiltily and uh, have some honey <laughs> on my strawberries afterwards and <laughs> and your opinions will continue to bang around in my head. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for being with us.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Josh. Thanks for talking. And if I've nudged your guilt a little bit and helped you build the confidence to break out of those outdated
0: <laughs> social norms, you know, I've done my bit for the morning. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.